on this final Sunday of 2020. It's an honor to be with you. Um, I may not know a lot of you and may not know me. I'd, I'd like to just say hello. Good morning. My name is Ralph Frazier, and uh, I'm just honored uh, to be with you this morning, uh, to have an opportunity to share God's precious and beautiful word. Uh, is it Miss Carmen that just read? Whew. I tell you, I'd like to hire her just to come and read the word <laughs> to me. That was uh, beautiful and powerful, our scripture for, for this day today. <clears throat> um, I don't have hardly any money in my bank account, but I want to tell you uh, just a little bit about me. I am the richest man on the planet, and primarily for four reasons. Uh, my wife, Sherry, uh, you may know her. She's the children's director here uh, at this precious church family. And then my three beautiful children, Alyssa, Ryan, and Logan. Uh, I have been blessed beyond uh, any man deserves. Uh, primarily, though, I, I stand before you as one of the richest men on the planet because of the mercy and grace of God that he has shown me, saved me, called me out of darkness, redeemed me, forgives me. And for some reason, uh, this lump of clay he has entrusted to be able to to share his word for a few moments together with you uh, on this day. Um, really, I can uh, share with you, I, I don't have much to say of value. But when we open this, he, the maker of all things, has much to say. And it is of great value. So I'd just like to just pause for a moment and pray that uh, while the Lord would get me out of the way, uh, maybe you had a morning all planned out like I did. It was supposed to go a certain way, and it's been a little more rushed and a little crazy than perhaps I had wanted it to be. But somehow, uh, God shows over and over and over and demonstrates time and time again that he uses broken things to accomplish his purposes. Uh, I'm just a broken thing. So my prayer is, uh, I, I hope we get to know each other. Uh, we're part of the same church family, absolutely, but... But the main, the main goal is not that Ralph is heard today, but that the Lord himself is heard and that, that our hearts are open to his word today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you for your great mercy. It's been a long year. But, oh Lord, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit today that you'd be free to... Uh, Open our minds, open our hearts, and renew our perspective. Correct our theology if it's been off track. Uh, grab a hold of our attention. It's, it's been a long year, yes, but you, you are still the king. And you are still in control. And there is a perspective, a way of life that you offer to those of us who know you. I thank you for being so faithful even when we are not. Uh, thank you for, for loving unworthy people, for forgiving us and restoring us. And I just thank you. Uh, of all the places in the world we could be right now, you have this time, this space, these people gathered together for these moments. So would you come and speak? Uh, get me out of the way. May you be heard clearly today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. 
And together we all say amen. 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 Just want to thank Pastor Greg and the elders uh, for the invitation, the, the privilege, the invite to be with you today. I know that we've been eating a lot recently, probably since Thanksgiving, and over this past week especially, uh, a lot of pecan pies and turkey and ham and roast beef and Christmas cookies and all kinds of things. But I want to invite you to a, a, a greater feast even today over these next few moments, uh, a feast, uh, a meal, if you will, from God's Word, from Romans chapter 8, that will really nourish our soul. As Miss Carmen read so beautifully, our passage today is in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 28. I want to encourage you to hang in there. It's a, it's a steak dinner with potatoes. It's a, it's a lot of meat in these 11 verses, and, and yet it is meat that nourishes our souls and hearts and our perspectives in, in ways that nothing this world could ever offer. So just to set a little bit of the context here, the book of Romans, as I'm sure many of you have heard, is just about one of the greatest dissertations on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It deals with a huge number of awesome theological issues. Uh, Every chapter in the book of Romans, it seems, is is a T-bone steak of doctrine, uh, dealing with the deity of God and the problem of humanity and sin, the the truth of faith and justification, and, and on and on. Paul, one who once was lost but now has been found, one who was so completely blind but now sees, this Paul who was once a persecutor of Christians, now he's a preacher, once a coward who stood by and watched Christians being stoned to death, now this same Paul is full of boldness for the gospel, at risk of being arrested, at risk of his very own life, standing for the cause of Christ. Unworthy, undeserving Paul, saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, this same Paul is an apostle on a mission for the one who saved him. He says in himself, even in the very first verse of Romans chapter 1, verse 1, in his own words, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself as one whose time and work and purpose and life no longer belongs to himself, but belongs to Jesus. This Paul has a decision to make in the context and the setting of Romans. He's on his third missionary journey. He's been spending three months in Corinth. He's very close to Rome. He's never been to the church. It was planted in his absence, and he's never had a chance to visit these Christians in Rome. He desires to visit there. But he also felt the weight of an important obligation. He has received large financial donations from the Macedonian churches, and it is his responsibility to deliver them to the churches in Jerusalem, where they had been suffering so greatly. He had these offerings, and he had a decision to make. Should he go to Rome and visit the church and delay delivering the offerings, or or should he turn and go to Jerusalem and bless the church with much-needed gifts that were needed? Paul follows the Lord's leading, and we know by now he decides to head to Jerusalem and instead write this, this letter, this powerful letter to the Romans, the Christians in Rome. 
In chapter 1, he shares his desire to visit them. And in chapter 15, he shares why he must go to Jerusalem with these offerings from the Macedonian Christians. This letter to the Romans, uh, you really need to know, it's, it's not just quick thoughts written down on a napkin. It's really written in the spirit of a last will and testament. It's a thorough summation of God's plan and God's work of salvation. And up to this point in Romans, up to chapter 8, our passage today, Paul is discussing and explaining some heavy truths. In the first three chapters of Romans, for instance, he talks about your main problem and my main problem, the problem of sin, the nature of it, and the consequences of it. In Romans chapter 4 and 5, he talks about the remedy the cap, with a capital R for your problem and for my problem, the remedy of Christ, of being made right with God and forgiven in faith and by faith alone in Jesus. In these recent chapters, the most recent ones, in chapters 6 through 8, Paul is trying to help Christians truly grasp their new identity in Christ. You're now dead to sin, and you're risen to a new life. You've moved from being slaves to your old life, and now you are sons and daughters of God. So live differently. He's encouraging them that trusting in Christ leads to living above a defeated and discouraged and short-sighted and anxious-filled life. But Christ and our identity in him makes all the difference. And also especially in these latter verses of chapter 8, verses 18 through 28, Paul issues a call for Christians to adopt a renewed perspective during difficult times. A perspective based on the unchanging nature and trustworthy resume of Almighty God. A perspective that eventually leads to a settled heart and a settled mind in spite of or in the midst of any circumstances that you may be going through. God still moves. God still responds. God still redeems and, and renews. Even at the close of 2020, in Christ we can have this, this powerful conviction that God still works. He really does, you know. Some very good news for the last Sunday of 2020. Whew, what a year. We entered 2020 and right around March, things began to change drastically. But even on this last Sunday of 2020 and on the, the precipice of a new year, God still works. Even in times of difficulty, and in times of suffering. And because of that truth, my perspective and, and your perspective on life and all it brings can be forever changed. God still works for the good. Now I know that most of us here today have heard these words. Um, in my years as a pastor, it was quite often that the last Sunday of the year, whew, a lot of people would either leave town or be returning back to things they have to do with their families or, or sometimes just exhausted from Christmas week. 
I don't pretend to, to stand before you today and, and read verses as if I'm offering up truths that have never been heard. So I'm assuming, and I think correctly, that many of you in the house today, you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Oh, please don't think this message is not for you if you have not made that decision. But, but in the house today, my hope today is in the, in the spirit of the Apostle Paul, from the heart of a pastor that we enter into the context of what's really happening here. It could be easy, if we're not careful, to just let the truths of Romans chapter 8 just kind of wash over us in a boring fashion. We've heard it before, yeah, I know, we even sang it, God works out all things, okay. But I hope you'll enter the context differently. This is not a Charlie Brown teacher voice type lesson where we can just go to sleep. You know that voice from old, wah, 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 wah. Wah, 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 wah. What do you say? Yeah, I've heard it before. Come on, we need to get to eat. Or football, it's coming. I need want to go and watch the game. This, this is not a, a yawning sermon, a yawning statement where we just kind of say something that we all know is familiar and maybe it'll make us feel better at the end of a tough year. Instead, it's, it's a conclusion that the Apostle Paul comes to grounded on the comparison between the present and the future, and that conclusion offers real hope for you and me today. For eight chapters, Paul's been talking about God's power and mercy and his rescue mission and his faithfulness, and it's been building like a crescendo in a great song, and then boom, he lays out this beautiful truth. I want to almost want to have Miss Carmen come up and read it again. He gets to verse 18, the crescendo, and he says this beautiful truth. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, perhaps I could say that the sufferings of 2020, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Present sufferings versus the future glory that is to be revealed. Two realities, one far outweighing the other. In Paul's eyes, not even worthy being compared to <clears throat> when the correct perspective is gained, when we see the present sufferings compared to the future glory promised in Christ. It's like the difference between eating store-bought chocolate chip cookies versus eating your grandma's Toll House cookies that are made with Crisco or lard instead of butter. Anyone? Yeah. Oh, they're unlike any other cookie I've ever had. Now that I'm quite a bit older, I can't eat lard cookies. They really destroy me. It's like the difference between seeing pictures of the Grand Canyon and standing on the edge of that Grand Canyon in person seeing the view with your own eyes. It's like listening to classical music on the radio <clears throat> versus seeing and hearing the Boston Symphony Orchestra in person. I actually have had that privilege. I went to college up in Boston way back when the dinosaurs roamed. And part of my schooling was to take music studies and appreciation and they offered what they called rush tickets to poor college students who hardly had any money. 
one hour before the performance, they would sell off the remaining seats for as little as $10 to get to see the Boston Symphony. It was part of my requirement in my music appreciation class to go observe the symphony in person and then write a report on it. So I stood in the line, it was cold, and thankfully some rush tickets came available. But when you get tickets for the symphony with an hour or 45 minute notice, you're gonna end up with some seats that aren't very desirable. I got to go two times. Once I sat right behind a giant pole and had to constantly do this just to see the orchestra. But the second time, and this was awesome, I sat in the very front row. Now at first that sounds pretty cool. I'm not talking about the folks who called ahead and bought their tickets with some serious money where it's far enough back to be able to take in the full experience. But I'm talking about the front row where literally I could reach out with my hand and touch the stage. So they're this close to me. You really can't see all around you. As I stood there and sat there down, I, I began to wonder, what is this gonna be like? The guest for this particular night was an internationally known, and I, I can't remember his name, a celloist. And he came out and sat down right there above me. I could reach out and touch his shoe if I wanted. And the music began to build, and, and he began to play his cello. And at first I thought, a cello, how boring. No, he began to play that thing, and it came alive. He played with such passion. He sweat, and it dropped on me. I felt like I was kind of at a rock concert, but not really. And it was this amazing experience, breathtaking. It's very different listening to classical music with a cello playing on the radio than being there in person, seeing it, uh, feeling it, touching it. There is no comparison, Paul says, between the present heaviness that we're enduring and the future glory that is coming. They, they don't even compare. Paul is not dismissing our present sufferings in verse 18. He's not making light of them, but he's helping us put them in perspective. When compared to what's coming, they are very light versus the weight of eternity. They're temporary, whereas the future glory is forever. Right now, everything is marred by sin, but one day, everything will be marked by glory. As any Christian should do, Paul acknowledges sufferings and difficulties. That's, that's part of any healthy theology. We have to deal with suffering, with, with difficulties. But in faith, Paul also acknowledges the future that God has planned for his people. It's a, a glorious future that cannot be thwarted. It's a future that's beyond compare because God still works. Christ will return, he will raise us with himself, and he'll reveal to the world his full and promised and unashamed adoption of his children. His glory shall be revealed in us for all the universe to see. Wow, that, that's a state dinner just in verse 18 alone. But Paul continues, pointing out the tension between the present and the future, the, the tension that is seen in creation itself. In verses 19 through 22, for instance, Paul reminds us that all of creation was affected by the fall, by sin, and waits with us to be fully redeemed, fully set free, 
when the children of God are revealed and glorified. In verse 20, we're told that because of sin, creation like us has been subjected to futility. What a phrase, subjected to futility. What, what is really going on here in, in the Greek, if you dig deeper, it's pretty awesome. Futility defined here means the inability of something to completely fulfill its created purpose. So imagine that for a minute. As breath, breathtaking as the mountains are, the, the sunsets, the trees, the animals, the ocean are now, they're not even comparable, Paul says, to the day when they're fully set free to give glory in ways that they were fully created to do. That's powerful. Even creation waits in expectation. In verse 21, Paul says, someday they'll be fully set free on the day where we are and we shall see them in their fullness, what they were created to do. No more futility taking place. Not yet, it's coming. So in the waiting, Paul tells us in verse 22 that all of creation is in partnership with us, groaning in expectation. <clears throat> the Greek word here is stenos. It means to sigh or groan because of an undesired circumstance. It's a, a longing, an emptiness. To sigh or groan because of an undesired circumstance. Uh, if you've ever been the parent of a teenager, you've experienced hearing stenos. Amen? Time to get up. Mm -hmm. You hear the groaning. <clears throat> As Miss Carmen read, uh, the, the illustration used is that the, even the groans of childbirth can be seen and, and, and felt and noticed in the creation that surrounds us. We see the, the evidence of, of stenos, don't we? That sighing and groaning of creation. Earthquakes and floods and volcanoes and hurricanes, even cold fronts that move into Florida and hang out for a while. Can I get an amen? My wife Sherry is from Florida. She's been very chilly and somewhat irritable lately from the chilliness. And I just want you to know from this young man who grew up in Maine, I believe it's a direct answer to the prayer of many of our hearts that it's been in the 50s and even the 30s recently. Thank you, Almighty God. So Paul, with a pastor's heart, he's reminding us that even as Christians, it isn't just creation that's groaning in expectation, but it's also we, even we who have the Spirit of God in our lives, those of us who've been born into hope, even we experience that groaning. In verses 23 through 25, we wait for all things to be finally made right, for our final adoption, for, for our futility to finally be over, for our bodies to be redeemed. We feel the emptiness at times, don't we, living in this world? The weight of wrong and loss and pain. And we groan at the sin that we see around us, the sin that seeks to wear us down, the unfairness and the sadness and the pain that, that disrupts and detours our lives. 
We, to, we too long for, for things to be fulfilled and completed, but, but different than the trees and the mountains, as beautiful as they are, we who have Christ within us, we, we wait in hope, and, and therefore we can wait with patience, with, with perseverance to see us through. Whew, I feel like in some ways at this point we need to push back from the table because we've eaten a little bit more than maybe we should have, or at least we ate pretty fast, and we've had a lot of protein. I feel that's kind of what, what Paul is doing. He's, he's saying, let's just take a moment in these next few verses and walk around and stretch out a little bit, loosen our belt, and, and let's get ready because there's more food coming, but you need to digest in a true and good and, and effective way what's happening. In verses 26 through 28, um, Paul describes one of the most awesome and intimate roles the Holy Spirit fulfills in our suffering, in the, in the midst of our groaning. It would seem that the cross would be enough to be a full testimony to you and to me that God takes our suffering seriously. He moves to where we are. He comes to us in our darkness. We're, we're just coming off the truth of Christmas. We understand that, and yet the merciful work of God continues even past the cross where we are told with no hesitation and with truth that can be counted on that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our groaning, the role of intercession takes place where the Holy Spirit of God literally doesn't just come alongside us but stands in our place. The Spirit, Paul says in verse 26, helps us in our weaknesses. When the pressure's too much, when the pain's too deep, when the weight is too heavy, when we can't find the words to pray, praise be to God, he prays in our place. Have you heard some good news lately? Hear it today. On our behalf, in the midst of our groanings, beyond our understanding, the Spirit intercedes for you and for me. He searches our hearts, verse 27. He knows our names. He's moved with compassion to pray on our behalf when we're too broken or too lost or too overwhelmed or confused to even find the words to pray. How merciful and awesome is God. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, this is some good news today. I'm, I'm really grateful when others tell me that they're praying for me. I'm so thankful when they pray for me out loud. I, I've had a lot of friends pray for me this week. I was so nervous. But I tell you what, I'm even more overwhelmed to know the very Spirit of God prays for me when I cannot. Many, many times. He's done that for me. And I know he's done it for you. And he'll continue to do so. So before we get to verse 28, I guess would be the key and, and the final verse in understanding that God still works. Have you noticed clearly some of the highlights of God's trustworthy resume that have been mentioned just in these last 10 verses alone? Just to review, God's future is greater than anything going on in the present. Even the best things you could come up with in this world don't compare to the future glory 
that's coming. God is in control. Did you catch it in verse 20? The futility of creation and even our own lives wasn't just because of random luck or because creation chose it, but because of him and his sovereign rule, he allowed the marring to take place so that our hope would be directed towards the only remedy. And in that waiting, he still walks with you and still walks with me. He's still in control. God responds to our groaning. Christmas is powerful, and yet we have ongoing intercession from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so with these things being drawn out on God's resume, Paul draws this conclusion. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There it is. God works. God still works in all things for our good. Words matter. They can influence theology greatly. I really believe that. I chose this translation from the NIV for this particular verse on purpose. In all things, God works. The focus in verse 28 is not on our things or our circumstances, but the focus is correctly placed on God. Today's message is not to move us towards this cute bumper sticker theology or a nice t-shirt slogan that says, all things happen for a reason. The car wouldn't start this morning. My, my son didn't make the team. My daughter can't have children. The hurricane just missed us, but it crushed North Carolina. The, the house burned down. The neighbors are horrible. The job is not what I expected. The cancer is back. Well, you know, all things happen for a reason. False hope, my friends. Distorted theology, if we're not careful. Hear me out. Things are powerless to work together by themselves. This theology fails to give credit where credit is due. It fails to confess there is someone with a capital S who really is in charge of it all. It fails to bow its knees before Almighty God. In all things, God works. That's where our hope is found. That's where our perspective can be changed. God is still good. The thing or the circumstance may not be good at all, but God is able to bring good because of who he is. The emphasis, if you will, the the main focus, it must always be on God to have proper perspective in hard times at the end of a long year like we've been through together. I do feel it's important that God helps us in our healthy perspective. I think it's important to mention the way the media has described this year, that it is the most horrible year that our country or this planet has ever endured. I'm thankful for the perspective if we can just step back for a moment. Amen? There have been tough, tough years long before 2020. And, and I'm not dismissing this year. It's, it's been tough. But God has been faithful to help you, to help me endure even some of the even worse things that we have experienced this year. He's been faithful, and and having this focus placed on God being the one who works, not somehow a random universe working together to make all things good. It's God that's the focus, and, and it brings us true hope that gets us through difficult times. 
God never wastes our suffering. I love the song that Pastor Brenton chose. He doesn't waste it. It's not, no failure, no pain is ever wasted in the plan of God. God still redeems broken lives. He restores even the most undeserving heart. I'm one of those. And he forgives even the most unworthy of sinners. People like you and and people like me. God is still good. God still works. We heard evidence of that this week. The Christmas Eve service. If you weren't able to be there, I encourage you to watch it on the website, on the Facebook page, stories of Emmanuel, real testimonies of some of our brothers and sisters, beautiful stories of God showing up, showing himself faithful. We heard about this last Sunday in the Christmas message from Pastor Greg, loved his story, Joseph in particular, how his ideal went to an ordeal. God was still at work. Just because an ordeal settles into your life it doesn't mean God has left. He's still working. It would be nice if God always used an angel like he did with Joseph to crush our doubts. Amen? But his resume is still intact, and it was long before Christmas night. <clears throat> you go way back to Genesis chapter 50, another Joseph, the one who was betrayed by his older brothers and sold into slavery and suffered greatly. And now God, staying faithful to him, has risen him up to be this strong and powerful leader. And there are his brothers standing before him. He holds his brothers' lives in his very hand. What does he say in Genesis chapter 50? Joseph, having finding, founding out the truth for himself that God is faithful, that he still works even in the most hardest of circumstances, comes to this conclusion. What you intended for evil... God meant for good. There it is. God still works for the good of those who love him. Paul is going deeper than just God's resume, however, than just his track record and trying to get enough evidence together to prove that God can be trusted. Really, he's speaking of God's intrinsic nature. Why is God able to still work in any circumstance? Because God is unchanging over time, and he's unable to be changed. The immutability of God. He's immutable. You've heard that before from this pulpit. I, I love the focus on this truth. It's a foundational truth of Christianity. And so we say amen. Yes, he is unchanging and, and therefore able to work in any circumstance for our good. Let's just close in prayer. But there's a little bit more. How does this truth work it out in our lives in a practical way? As we say farewell to 2020, amen? Goodbye. As we face each new day in our lives, I feel there are just a couple of things that are pointed out that we need to be aware of as God's people. Be aware of God's work in three main seasons of your life. One would be in the season of plenty. Perhaps you have plenty of money. All the bills are paid. You're not struggling to put food on the table. You have more than one or two sets of clothes. Be careful in times of plenty. It's more than just about money. It seems to be in seasons where things are just going well. 
It's not about being a downer. It's about being aware. Jesus certainly gave us a lesson in talking about the rich man. It's hard for the rich to enter into the way of the kingdom. For if they don't know it or not, very often the rich will place their trust in their possessions and in their bank account and in the power and prestige that comes with being rich. But there is no substitute for God. So in times of plenty, remember, in all things, God works for the good. Give credit to God always. Stay humble. Guard your heart. If you're in a season of plenty, hear the truth that this scripture applies. This is not just in regards to just difficult times, but in every season we go through. May the Lord um, remind you of that truth. Stay humble. There is nothing else compared, nothing this world that can offer, even in seasons of plenty, that compare to the Lord. The second season to be aware of God's work in is in seasons of disappointment. Unmet expectations, that futility that Paul described with the creation. You and I live in a consistent state in this fallen world where unexpected outcomes happen, where unmet expectations are a reality. Uh, I work nights at Chipotle. Maybe I've seen some of you there. I'm kind of a burrito master at this point. Um, easy to spot. Everyone else there, I think, is 11 years old. I'm the old guy that works there. <laughs> customers all the time assume I'm the manager. I have a problem. Uh, see that 14-year-old girl down there? That's the manager. It's awesome. I stand there in the line doing the burrito press, and I, I see people as they get closer and closer ready to make the order. Man, they are excited. You just see it. They're wringing their hands. They can just taste that, that carne asada. They're getting ready for that veggie bowl. Yeah. They're getting ready for the chicken the barbacoa, they've got it all planned out. I, I want this particular ingredient and this particular order. I want black beans, no thank you, I want sour cream. And then it's very intriguing to watch what happens. Full-grown adults, they had an expectation of what their meal was going to be. As they slide down the line, they get to where the sour cream is or the guacamole, and then they hear it. Could I please have guac? And then I say it. I'm so sorry, we're out of guac. And it's in that moment even God's people, where the planet stops for a minute, and you see them trying to process, it usually begins in the brow. Even we can see it through the mask. What? And then they have a choice to make. It's either, woe is me, life is over as I know it, or they can settle. All right, it's going to be okay. I want to tell you that many grown adults, they don't do okay. It usually sounds something like this in a very loud, screaming voice. How can you call yourself a Chipotle and not have guacamole? Oh, you just receive it. Oh. Unmet expectations can really lead to disappointments. Having a little fun there, but listen, we must take care to remember God is still at work. Because disappointment seasons, if we're not careful, can fuel our anger even towards God. They can lead us to choose other idols of escape 
or affirmation or pleasure because we begin to conclude that even though we've considered God's resume and seen all the evidence and heard the messages many times, we have concluded God is no longer working because disappointment equals God has left. And we get a distorted theology, even if for a season, many Christians are struggling with disappointment We have to be careful with God's help not to land in a state where we live as a victim constantly. Life owes me something. God owes me something. Why do others have it better than me? And we can move far away from God in our disappointments if we don't take care to remember that he's still at work. If we live with this constant anger from our disappointments, at times we can be like trying to, to... serve God with two different things. We have one hand raised and open, bless you, Lord, and we have another raised with, an open, with a fist. Lord, I'm angry. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Disappointment keeps happening. Oh, we've got to guard our hearts in seasons of disappointment where our expectations aren't met. We can end up refusing to confess or agree with God that he is still trustworthy that he's still working for our good, even in a time of disappointment. And we could end up with a real stunted growth, spiritually speaking, a very adolescent or childish type spiritual growth that stops because we don't learn to trust God, even in times of disappointment. I have good news for you. God can handle our anger. Don't let it consume you. Stephen Siemens wrote a beautiful book, Bringing Our Wounds to the Cross. At the cross, God's wrath was poured out upon Christ. All the unmet expectations, all the failures, all the sins poured out on his son. I encourage you, at the end of 2020, if there's some anger that you are building towards the Lord, would you come again to the cross? Would you own that anger? And then in the power of Christ, get this, disown that anger. Let it go. Disappointment does not mean God has left. Turn to him. See, he's still at work, still can be trusted. Be careful in seasons of plenty, in seasons of disappointment, and finally in the season of pain. Perhaps one of the hardest seasons we endure, we experience betrayal betrayal or maybe huge personal failure or loss that takes our breath away. A couple of years ago, I worked at a funeral home for a whole year as a funeral attendant. I want to let you know as a pastor, I did dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals, but I never worked on that side of the funeral from the funeral home perspective, if you know what I mean. I can tell you that almost every single time, Nobody was happy to see me when I showed up. I walked into one local nursing home here in Indian River County. There was a woman in her early 90s, and she was hunched over her walker at the front desk. I came in in my full suit, for we were required to wear a full suit when we were picking up a loved one for transport. I came in and left my stretcher just beside inside the front door and walked up to the front desk to report that I was there. This woman in her early 90s was bent over and hunched in her back, and she looked up at me and saw me in my suit. And you know what she said? Woo, you are one fine-looking man. (laughs) Not lying. 
couple nurses right there. So listen, I don't, I don't have much going on, but at least women in their 90s who can't see very well and are bent over think that I'm pretty good to look at. She asked me this question, who in the world are you? Why are you here today? And I said, ma'am, I work with the funeral home. She cut me off in mid-sentence. Her whole facial expression changed. Oh, I don't want nothing to do with you. She got her walker and just took off down the street, down the hallway. (laughs) I've been all over this town and this county. I've been to mansions on John's Island. I've been to tiny little trailer parks where you can't even believe people live in these trailers. I've been to hospitals and hospice centers and the medical examiner. I've picked up loved ones who were the victims of homicides and those suicides and accidents. Those who were expected to pass away and those who were completely unexpected and shocking. Death does not discriminate. It really doesn't matter how much money you have in your pocket or where your address is, whether you're young or old. Um, We can't take it with us. Death is very humbling. It's a sacred privilege to step into such deep pain, to be welcomed into moments of loss and final goodbyes and darkness, transporting their loved ones, taking them into care, treating them with dignity and respect, At times, I'll be honest with you, it was so incredibly overwhelming. My phone, while I was on call, would go off at 2 in the morning, and I would have to go and pick up an individual all by myself. And then I would be there in the back room, alone in the funeral home, receiving this person into care, surrounded, literally, literally surrounded by death. It was so dark. The Holy Spirit would come and say, put some worship music on. I'd put it on my phone, and I'd let worship fill the room. And I'm here to tell you, in that incredible heaviness, God would come near. He helped me through some really tough nights. One of the most difficult memories I have in particular was when we helped a family in the loss of a little baby. I was the one who had to pick this little one up and received this precious little one into our care. The mother came to the funeral home. It wasn't wasn't typical. That just didn't happen. Usually families came to grieve hours and hours later, or the day next, or two days later. But what do you do when it's your precious little baby? She came and just sat in the chapel, and she wailed. I'm I'm not making this up. It was over nine straight hours. She wailed and wailed and wailed. It was breathtaking in a horrible way. Others on staff would turn to what they had to cope in trying to deal with the reality of this present darkness and and difficulty. So they would step outside and smoke cigarette after cigarette, or they would go out in their car and sip some, some vodka that they had out, trying to somehow endure the pain of this woman's wails. I found myself just walking around the funeral home. You you couldn't get away from it. Even though she was on the far end of the building, could hear her heart screaming out to God. I would just whisper, Lord Jesus, be near, Lord Jesus, be near. I wasn't planning on it, but the funeral director came to me. This young couple doesn't have a pastor. They know, I've told them you're a former pastor. Will you please go meet with them? They want you to do the service. A two-minute notice. I just 
felt the heaviness come over me, but I also want to share with you in that same moment, the very Spirit of God just came close. I had no idea what to say as I walked down towards that room. What do you say? As I sat down in the chair and she sobbed and sobbed, I want you to know that the Spirit of God was very clear. Just be silent, Ralph. Just be silent. And I just sat for a long, long time. I've learned that valuable lesson many times when families are suffering. She then looked me right in the eye and she asked me directly the question that you know would probably come, right? Why, why did God allow this to happen? Now friends, do you think at that time a cheap theology of, listen, all things happen for a reason would offer hope in that moment. Or perhaps another really bad, cheap answer that sometimes comes out of the Christian world. God must have wanted that baby more than you did. God must have needed, oh, no. Bad preaching, bad, bad theology in the face of suffering. Here's all the Lord allowed to come out of my mouth. I, I don't know why. But I do know that God is good. Right now, he's working on your behalf. He's, he's counting your tears. He weeps with you, and he's able to carry you. Mm. You see, in all things God works is a theology, a perspective, that makes all the difference and it's not only what we are looking for, but the world itself. It was some horrible days. The Lord helped me in doing that funeral for that sweet young family. They were engaged. They weren't yet married. They invited Sherry and I over to their home. And the next few weeks, they then invited me to do their wedding. And this precious young mom who experienced such loss gave her heart to Christ. And now they're going to church together. And now, several years later, they have a brand new baby that God has brought. Was it a good thing that happened to that sweet mom? Of course not. Paul would not in any way encourage that. We, we acknowledge suffering. But in the midst of such incredible darkness, the truth still remains. God was still able to work for good. It's God at work, God's resume and his character. All of this knowledge should someday lead to a conclusion, shouldn't it? To a settled heart in the heart of a Christian person, to a settled mind. I think there are lots of ways to describe it. I like Psalm 62.5. The psalmist says this, let all that I am wait quietly before God for my hope is in him. Yeah. If God still works, then I can place my hope in him. That whatever my lot, that whatever comes tomorrow, I can still place my trust in him. A settled heart and a settled mind, because of trusting in the promises of God, is something that can have a powerful influence on those who need hope. Did you know that? 
are. We, because of God's grace and mercy, have a beautiful answer the world is still looking for. That there really is a God and that he is with us and that he still works. I found uh, this little story on Instagram. I'm pretty horrible with technology. Uh, I think I set a record the other day. My sons are trying to help me just to put a contact into my phone. took over 20 minutes. That's all right. It's humbling. But this uh, was a beautiful, simple page that has to do with Christians responding to those who are broken around them. Here's a letter that was left on the door of an apartment of a Christian couple. Hello, neighbors. Apartment 207 here. I regret to inform you we have begun sleep training our baby boy. After many sleepless nights, thanks to the dreaded four-month sleep regression, we have decided it is time to start the, quote, cry it out method with our baby. If you hear the cries, please pray for me, and know I am also crying and going insane. I'm very sorry for any inconvenience this may cause you. Let's hope that it doesn't last long. I'm starting today. I'm going to try for a strong three to four days. If he doesn't get with the program, I will give it a week or two break, and then I'll try again. Please know, I am not neglecting my baby, but I will let him try to self-soothe for 45 to 60 minutes at a time during this period. I will be in the room every five to ten minutes to reassure him he is not alone and he is okay. If you start to feel hatred towards us, just give a friendly knock on the door and I will bring you a shot of tequila to mend our neighborship. It's cheap tequila, but it will calm your nerves. It's been tested and proven to work by yours truly. Anyhow, keep us in your prayers and turn the TV volume up. If you need milk or sugar or eggs, we have some. And tequila too, just swing by. Your tired and very sorry neighbors, the wards. The response was, we're going to make them cookies tonight and go visit them. Now, before you think I'm saying you should drink tequila, that's not the point, is it? Uh, A season of difficulty is settled upon this young family. Because we know the power of Christ in our lives and the Spirit interceding that God still works, even in tough seasons, there is an other side, another side you will come through, we can offer hope to those who are facing difficulties and pain. Amen? It it may be that God leads you to sit down and explain for hours the book of Romans to somebody. It may be just making some sugar cookies for a young couple that's exhausted and so embarrassed and apologizing and feeling like it's never going to end, and you can offer hope. I pray that even today in the restaurants you visit, the people you see, the families you live with, that you would offer hope. Why is God still able to work? It's because he is unchanging and unchanged. He has no need to change, my friends, for he is perfect and holy and awesome. He's unchanging in his will and his character, his promises, his wisdom, his love, his justice, and his goodness. He's unchanging. I've asked Brenton if he would come and help me just kind of close with a simple illustration. 
So, hi, Brenton. Uh, the immutability of God. <clears throat> Unchanging. That's why he's still able to work. I love how my wife, Sherry, explains this to children. So I'm just going to ask you to hold out your hand for just a minute. So when the beautiful understanding of God's work in your life and in mine, uh, remember there, there is a, a gap between us. And it must be reconciled, it must be dealt with, for God is holy and perfect in all ways. He's sinless, and to reach out to someone who has been marred by sin takes a great journey. And that's what we've celebrated recently, right? That in Christmas we see that God moves first. He, he comes towards us and reconciles. But, but here's the truth. Um, I will offer, and I'll invite you to take my hand, Brenton. I will. I'll, I'll demonstrate that my resume is trustworthy. I'll, I'll give you promises that can last forever. But I will never force you to take my hand, to place your life and your heart and your future into my hand. And it may be scary. It may be hard. But here's the truth. If you will take my hand, ah, I won't force you into it, but get this, Brenton. Now that you are in my hand, there's nothing that can take you out. Nothing. And you'll have seasons of plenty and seasons of disappointment and seasons of pain. But I've written your name on the palm of my hand. And the word tells us that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He won't force us into his hand, folks. But the unchanging, immutable God, just because of who he is and his nature, it's impossible for him to lie, to break a promise. Nothing, nothing will ever pull you from his hand. As we close out this year, I pray that you will be reminded there are thousands of reasons to trust the Lord. I pray that you will will know that whatever, whatever your lot may be, God is still at work. I just uh, pray God's blessing on you at the end of this year. I would like to invite you to stand as we sing <clears throat> kind of this anthem together, if you will. I used to always try this dad joke, and I know I'll probably try it in the next few days. I'll say something to Sherry, something like, you know, we should probably make out a little bit because we won't get to make out until next year. <laughs> get it? We're real close to next year. Yeah. Sometimes uh, I'd say in church even, hey, we, we need to shake hands. We need to love one another because we won't see each other until next year. Um, but in all seriousness, I think that this particular anthem is a great way to close out 2020 this last Sunday where we're together as God's family may you know that God still renews and restores <clears throat> in times of plenty and disappointment and pain God, God still works that's just who he is and it will never change